Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Pretend World's Real People. As always, I'm Tyler, and I am exhausted. I uh, had a bunch of coffee, but I'm still, man, I am still tired. It's been a great week, a very hardworking week. I'm just finally settling down to get this intro going, make sure it's out on time for all of you, and uh, yeah, also looking for some day job stuff, you know, as um, working performers, working artists, working actors, whatever you want to call yourself, working creatives, we uh, do have to find a day job here and there to pay our bills and keep us satiated. So I might have to go back to bartending, which, you know, it's fine. It's a job as long as bills are paid and I can still focus on my career and, of course, this amazing show, which you should also rate five stars on Apple Podcasts. Maybe leave a typed up review if you have the time and you care because it just helps the show uh, essentially be seen by more people. It helps us boost up in the rankings. So if you wouldn't mind, really quick, pausing this, go on to your phone, give us a five-star review, maybe put in a, hey, Tyler's kind of cool, uh, <laughs> in the review caption. That would be awesome. But let's get right into this week's episode, because I had a chance to talk with somebody who I've been a fan of for a very long time. And honestly, you know, I don't see a whole lot of press-based interviews or, you know, sort of like junkets with him. He doesn't seem like a very public-facing artist, and I thought that was, you know, really cool. I wanted to learn more about him, and luckily I had about 40 or so minutes to, you know, pick his brain and hear his story from graduation, going to college, uh, deciding to switch careers, (laughs) developing a, you know, very wonderful theatrical resume but then also transitioning into film and television, uh, which he has rocked in films like, of course, Inception, Avatar, Avatar The Way of Water, and my personal favorite, Drag Me to Hell. Uh, I am, of course, I'm talking about the amazing Dilip Rao. He was just fantastic to talk to. We talked about a whole slew of things that I won't spoil, and you'll just have to listen to the episode. So without further ado, let's get in to the volume, so to speak. Let's sit down and have an amazing chat with Dilip Rao. Hey, I'm Dilip Rao, and I'm an actor. And how long, man, have you either wanted to be an actor or have thought about becoming an actor? Has that been something that you know started earlier on, or was it something you kind of fell into? How did that work for you? Um. You know, I had hints of it. I think things like this, for some people, for me at least, they like they kind of are subliminal, and um, they weren't quite aware in my consciousness yet. I wasn't aware of them. Uh, somewhere around college is where it clicked. Like I think my freshman year in college, it became something that I really needed to do. I had some experiences that made me believe in it and believe in the art. Although I had a lot of doubts about myself in the art, but um, I I believed it was a craft that could be studied and achieved at at least a, a competent level, hopefully, right? And um, and all, and always improving from there. And, you know, you said something when we spoke just a minute ago about um, you're climbing up the ladder and I've worked enough. We're all still climbing up the ladder. The ladder is infinite, right? Like Daniel Day-Lewis <laughs> is climbing a ladder, right? Meryl Streep is climbing a ladder because they're still setting a very high bar for what their art can achieve. And they, of course, have the aptitude and the vision to achieve it. So, um, yeah, I think we're all still doing that. I'm still doing it. I'm still figuring it out. Yeah, you know, just uh, showing up and 
really big projects uh, for the next couple of years or so while you're at it. But while you're uh, like while you're doing that, because we, I mean, obviously everybody listening to this knows, you know, you are in the Avatar films. You've been in Inception, Drag Me to Hell, one of my favorite movies. But working on, you know, these these bigger projects, man, do you like when you go back to your trailer, do you think about other pieces you want to accomplish within your acting career? I mean, do you think about making indies or, you know, kind of venturing? Oh, on? yeah. I mean, I, tr- I have made some indies also, but I try not to think about those things from my trailer. My trailer, I'm trying to think, can I get some sleep? Uh, are we are we going to go? What are, we, what are we going? Can we get an estimate like when we start? Because, yeah. you know, sometimes these movies they you work when you work and you don't always work but when you work they're really long days so you have to save up your energy for the takes and stuff i used to when i started you know i was like i'll never need a stand i'll be my own stand and i i didn't get like how it worked because i was a stage actor you do everything yourself right yeah and i am still a stage actor by the way um but in, in theater you do it all yourself and they were like no you're gonna need to go get some rest and not be standing here while we like this that's stupid and i'm like all oh, right okay i should be doing my homework right so in the trailer i'm definitely trying to like figure stuff out with the scene and still have it very fresh in front of me. But back to your question. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's an, a maturity that comes when you're starting to burn away your youth and you reach, which I'm in firmly in middle age uh, and you become, I think, you know, versed in your craft. No one should think or an expert unless like you are Daniel Day-Lewis or, or uh, Gary Oldman or Kate Blanchett or, you know, one of these geniuses, right? Al Pacino, someone. Nicholson, people like that. Um, you, you get versed, though, you know, and then you kind of the vision you have for your career, which is always, I think, um, you know, part of your life and it changes. It gets blended, though, with your honest assessment of like what your agency is like. You don't get to choose everything in life unless you're on the very rarefied group of actors. And that and that group has huge turnover from year, year to year, epoch to epoch, decade to decade. And the number of people who get to choose even if they do choose, is very few. And they get it for a short period of time most of the time. Some people get it for a long time because they're absolutely excellent, bankable, and chosen in a certain way and also prove they're worthy, you know, like DiCaprio or, yeah. you know, Kate Blanchett, like any of those people, Brendan Gleeson, like these are astonishing actors that they'll get to do it forever, you know, and Colin Farrell, whoever you were to say. Like, so uh, you can have a lot of visions of what you'd like to do. What you have to be practical about, I think, is without diminishing who you want to inhabit, how hard you want to work, it's not about the parts you want. It's about how hard you work on the parts you do get. Even if that is you just get to borrow it for like 15 minutes for audition, right? Yeah. If you get to borrow a part for 15 minutes, if you can work that hard to inhabit that with what your vision is for that thing, that's a lot more specific to me at where I live now in my life than the grandiose visions of what you might want. I have, you know, like any young person, I had big dreams of what I want to do and they'll still live in me. But as you become more... Um, pragmatically in the job like you're actually doing it instead of just having a vision for it you have um a lot more serious concerns about the work in front of you and i think that takes up a lot more of what you should be thinking about at least for me i can't speak for anyone else but for me focusing on the work i have to do is probably the most important thing and i can always be better at that by the way oh yeah i i completely agree i uh we went back to you know talking about ladders how it's it's an ever elongating piece within the performance career itself. And yeah, uh, yeah honestly, I, I completely agree when you show up on set and you guys are prepping everything, that's your mind's in it. The second you go back to your trailer, your mind is still in it. Maybe to go to the bathroom, maybe to take I mean, a Everyone's different, nap. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah every, everyone's different. Yeah. But I, I really want to hear about um, 
you know, your, your pursuit of this craft as somebody who, you know, is not a Caucasian performer, you know, it's, uh, yeah. something that I was really trying to navigate. I've been doing this for about 10 years now. And just now, is it starting to feel like things are becoming more approachable as yeah. far as roles go? So I want to hear if you wouldn't mind talking about, you know, pursuing, you know, uh, theater, pursuing film, TV as uh, essentially a person of color instead of, you know, the, uh, I guess, large populace of Caucasian actors we had in the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s and how that started. Oh, to I mean, I, I would say earlier than that, I would say forever. Right. Like, well, yeah, yeah. Unless, I, I guess I, I'm thinking I say, of uh... I would say from 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 the beginning of like modern <laughs> European Western cultural theater and filmmaking, white yeah. people have to be on stage representatively for a long time till maybe five, ten years ago, maybe five years yeah. ago, right? Six years ago. Um, look, I think the thing that's really important in this conversation and we're in a time where there's a lot of flux and believe me, it's in a blink of a blink of an eye right now. Right. Like yeah. it's nothing compared to the history that's come before the epochs of both racism, denial and and marginalization and uh, extirpation of stories of color, people of color. Now the floodgates are open and things are changing. We're figuring it out. But I think we have to remember that like nothing is absolute and nothing is, is good or bad, except diversity is good. Like having more people and diversity shouldn't be a code word for brownness or yeah. <laughs> uh, other otherness or, or non-whiteness. Diversity literally is an English word means a many, you know, of many types. And um, I think the thing we have to realize is that it's hard for everyone. Like it's an oversubscribed profession. There are so many white actors who never get a shot who are perfectly talented, perfectly good looking, beautiful, even whatever, beautiful work. They never get seen. They never get the, the knock. And there is a, just a fundamental reality that there are fewer jobs by a factor of a hundred, maybe even a thousand. And there are people who want them and it's constantly churning. Right. And um, there is a winnowing process that will always be unfair. Now, the the straight line Occam's razor for the most part was like it didn't matter if you were brown, though. Like you just couldn't have it. And if you're brown or I mean dark brown, which is African-American, black, Latino, Asian, however you identify. right? And if you're marginalized in another way, you're gay, you're transgender, especially still um, a lot was put in front of you. So you just could never even be there. And people who themselves did not consider themselves racist would practice racism. Right, they'd be like, I would love to put you in this TV show, but I can't because I have to profess the racism of someone I've imagined in the Midwest, right? Or in, in the Western Plains or some fictitious uh, American uh, demographic they had to please that didn't like to see you with those roles. You know, um, I think that that process, if you're going to go into that, and I went into it uh, full-fledged when I got out of school, um, when it really wasn't moving. It, there was no, it was no different when I came out of the school, uh, out of school when, than it was in the 1940s or 30s for a black man to be on stage or in, in front of a camera. And that African-Americans fought so hard to get in front of cameras and do the excellent work from Hattie McDaniel and even before that, complying with race coding and complying with um, marginal opportunities and outshining those opportunities to put brick by brick to build a stairway for everyone else to go on. Uh, I laud them immensely for that. And that made it possible for someone to say, maybe there's another kind of brownness that could happen. And in the beginning, it was impossible. There was no one would see me for anything. I couldn't get cast. Um, I had some people who really believed in me who I'm so grateful for. And I just kept working hard. And I had that deluded sense that I, you know, I, I mean, this is a person who, who knows the flaws of America very deeply and understands them. Uh, and I don't, 
I, I want to say I, I fully uh, understand it's complex and modeled um, complexion, you know. Uh, but I also believed, uh, and I took the American dream that's word, even if that's diluted for a person of color, because it is pretty strongly say, but not for you, right, for most of the history of America. Um, but I took it at its word, and I decided that there must be, there must be a way. And, you know, like you were saying about my dreams in my career, like, I'm not Jack Nicholson, and I kind of wanted to be, right? I wanted to be young Al Pacino. And you want to be, at the end of the day, you want to be you, right? But Delete Brow <laughs> is not Jack Nicholson. And I don't get to be the star of all the movies I'm in and probably won't. Like, I'm a character actor and I love doing that. And who knows? Life's different. But I'm saying the way it's gone so far, no, I'm not that guy. But I've still been able to get some of what I wanted. I got to do my work. You know, some of the biggest directors I could even imagine in my life working with. And some of the smallest directors, some of the best parts on small stages and small films. And um, it has changed. People have started to see things. The biggest barrier to fall, and I think I'm not fully sure, but I think it, it has a lot to do with African-American women rising to positions of power inside these corporations. The biggest barrier to fall is that invisible force field that kept us out of everything because they feared that some group of Americans would recoil. And it is true. They were right. Some group of Americans has recoiled. You can see it online all the time. Like oh, that totally. poor situation that happened with... with um, uh, the second Star Wars sequel film where they were just all over the, the uh, Korean-American actress because yeah. she's just not right. She's not Star Wars. You know, like, but it was a smaller voice than anyone thought. Loud, but small. And everyone kind of just went, okay, you're that loud kid and the class is going to disrupt class. Shut up. We're moving on. Right? And um, it turns out like humanity is humanity and people do care. And yes, it's going to take some getting used to. Yes, it's going to be, there's a lot, this is, you know, we should be a lot, I think a lot more patient with everyone. Things are harder. We should never compromise on anyone's rights. Like you and I should not be barred from auditioning because someone might be uncomfortable with you or me in the part. That's not cool. It's not cool if someone's like, I don't know about a black man and a white woman having sex. Like, don't give it. You know, I don't care if you're not if you're not comfortable with that. That's reality. These human beings are being human beings. But if someone says, I'm not used to whatever I'm seeing, right? I'm not used to a brown face in that little Hamlet. Well, I'll give you a few times to watch it. I'll give you a few plays. Get used to it. We're all people, you know, we're all trying to do the work and be here. And the more I think open we can be like that, the more the audience can cohesively come together and have an honest, good faith conversation about these things. Yeah, yeah. No, that's your question. No, it, it totally does. No, and I, uh, I, um, I hope I, you don't I brought mind up, sip my coffee. You know, take a sip, man. I brought up, uh, you know, the, the 90s and early 2000s because a lot of the people that I've grown up watching, I was born in 92. So uh, I, I just, I always go back to that and seeing this this slow shift and i was thinking you know with you uh you know honing your craft and pursuing acting you know uh, presumably right after college right or throughout college you were you're going um i so was UCLA, studying to be a doctor it? ucsd UCSD. I was studying okay. to be a doctor i wanted to be a, a doctor screen better or whatever and i was taking all those classes and but i was also taking theater classes on the side and i just gained the courage of my convictions through those years and <laughs> i knew pretty early i wanted to do it and um then i went to drama school at act in san francisco and that's where I really learned a lot of what is my craft. And a lot of it dropped in afterwards. I think sometimes when you're in an immersive environment like that, you learn a lot because of your effort, but you learn a lot despite your effort. <laughs> you try and you're in your own way, right? Like you're clumsy and you're not, uh, uh, you're not even good at the uptake yet. And then slowly you come into learning this other kind of learning. And, um, you know, it, it activates certain processes in your being that are just about like intellectual learning, which is easier for me. Um, it's kind of a physical and experiential learning and uh, a rhythm and impulse thing that was really important for me to figure out. And 
a lot of that dropped in after school. But yeah, that's that's sort of where I I was you know starting my dreams, starting yeah. to work. And were you pursuing stage primarily just because you felt a certain placement there, or what was that like? You know, kind of going. Well, I, there direction? were there were no in, there were no Indian American movie actors or TV <laughs> actors. You know, there were some brave people that I can say that's not fair. There were some people who were very yeah. brave and gave their lives and careers to things that were not going to um, support them. No one would come out and meet them. And they were offering good work even, you know, and in Britain more because they have a longer relationship with what they call Asian, which is for them, Asian is Indian because mm-hmm. um, they have a long colonial relationship with India, you know, at least 150 years or more. Um, and so they were able to integrate the large minority of their people into their work. Still, they're struggling with that, right? But they're better at it. Here, you know, our, our bigotry comes from a very overt, uh, constant force of that that comes from our culture and it's both implicit explicit overt you know um it can be you know like i've said once before it's as powerful and invisible as gravity sometimes we're all trying to dismantle it for the better now you know um but yeah i I, there was no one on on front of the camera doing what i what we we do now right like um there was stage work and i was really passionate about shakespeare and chekhov especially once i learned what was happening, which is fundamental acting, I had to learn it, uh, what was happening in the subtextual world of Chekhov and how the the truth about yourself and the flaw and the desire and the failure and the hurt that's in those plays is both hilarious and tragic at the same time because it has to play in a certain way. I fell in love with that and I wanted to do that. That's, you know, it's not really possible. Like it was very different in the 90s in some ways. Like I came out of school in the late nineties, early aughts, right? That's when I sort of came out. And um, they, there was still the ability to make a decent living as a stage actor, you know, that's not a singer, right? You can still work today on Broadway and make a great living, you know, as a Broadway actor who can sing, even if you're in the chorus or a small part. Um, that's not really true. If you just do regional theater or an occasional play in New York, you're still struggling to pay your bills, especially now. So I think it's changed. I think you have to be a hybrid. You have to be able to do all of it. And now, of course, thank God, there is more of an opportunity to make a living in front of a camera. Now it's still teeming with uh, everybody who wants a dream, you know? And so, and it should, you know, that's, that's that everyone who wants to take a shot. I believe in that fully. And I believe that almost everyone can be good, you know, maybe not great. I think that's really, really hard in acting, but almost everyone with enough effort effort could be good. Oh, absolutely. And it seems like going back to what you said, you have to be a multi-hyphenate. You have to do a bunch of different things. I think it also goes for on camera now as well, you know, when it comes to self-tapes and selling yourself as X, Y, or Z, maybe being a writer, being a director, being a producer, and really showing whoever's going to hire you, you can do so much more that this is a profession. This is something you can do. I am just curious to see when you had that moment, that opportunity to hop in front of a camera, what was that like for you? What was going through your head? You know, I, I was terrified. If I'm honest about it, I was like very fish out of water feeling. It was mostly in my head, right? And the smartest thing I did in that moment is I told Jim Cameron, I'm like, I've never been in front of a camera. And I'm afraid you're going to fire me. And he goes, <laughs> why do you think that? And I was like, I just haven't done this before and I don't know what I'm doing, I don't think. And he goes, you know what you're doing. And I'll be right here. I'll be right next to you operating the camera, which he is most of the time, you know? And um, that gave me so much confidence. And it also was that the training I'd have and the experience I'd had on stage, there's a lot of plays by then. That stood me up in the beginning. Mm. And I started to, as because I did all the work the way I normally do, of course, because that's my process. And that work and my knowledge, you know, my skill 
whatever skill I have that helped. And it got me through the terror. And I was like, literally like, I'm not joking, like running my lines for hours in my hotel room, just trying to make sure I'd be good, you know, and that I'd had the right slant on it. And, you know, that kind of going from where I was, and I'm not saying there's levels, but I had never done anything to suddenly being in this top secret James Cameron project. So suddenly too, like I left two weeks after I got the job and like, I was there in New Zealand and, and I was just waiting forever to shoot because you know, you, you go and you go. And it, it was so trying until I first got into the movie. And then I learned by doing that it was exactly what I need to do. And there's slightly different things, but they're very common sense if you know what you're doing. It's, I, I always say it's like stage and, and, and camera work are like playing. They're, they're very different. But they're like playing first and third base in baseball. They're the same skills but in vastly different proportions, right? And um, there's a lot to the process of filmmaking that's different than stage work, right? But it, they all have corollaries, all have analogs. And so after that, I felt, also I just felt so connected to Jim Cameron because he's a genius and he's a brilliant director, but he's also, I think, a person you can rely on. You can collaborate with him as an artist and lean on him and he'll lean on you. And like, you can feel that sense of communion that is the most exciting thing in art. And he is very open to it. And I felt so blessed that he was the first director I worked with on camera. Wow. I didn't know that, that was the first on-camera yeah. role you had. Wow. I, I, I don't blame you for running your lines continuously throughout your hotel room. I would be losing my mind. It was too big a part <laughs> in my own mind. It was great. I loved it. I love having a big part. But to me, I was like, oh, my God, this part is huge. Yeah. You know, for like your first thing, I was like, yeah. But, you know, instinct and, and using yourself, especially in front of the camera, is so important. Because you are so unique, your greatest asset sometimes is that you're uniquely you, you know, mm. and um, I fit that role in certain ways really well. And then I built out the other parts I thought that mattered more. Um, that weren't me, not mattered more, but they were different than me. So they took more work. Um, yeah, it was super fun. I love playing Max. He's really fun to play. And he's a fun uh, guy to be in the skin of. And honestly, going back to 2009, you had, what, two years straight. I would count as a, as a breakout, uh, you know, yeah. time frame. What was going through your head during that time? Cause that's, that's crazy to go from not being on camera to being an avatar, drag me to hell inception, you know, all within two years. How did that change your approach to the business and changing your approach to, you know, really finding, uh, I don't know, maybe a new pursuit of happiness within your career. Well, I think that, you know, there's this sense that, You've wanted something for so long and suddenly you're in it and it's busy and you're working very hard, you know, and you're having experiences like literally every week that you've never had. Right. So it's kind of mind blowing, like you're on location, but you're shooting, you're not going to rehearsal. Right. And um, you're, you're getting one job than the next and the next. And, you know, I'm not ignorant of the fact that, if you get cast by Jim Cameron and you audition, especially that movie was gestating for a long time. So you get a lot more of the, you know, wow, you must be in this. We don't know the defects of your performance. Not to say that there are massive, maybe there are, but I'm not <laughs> saying that's thing, but the actuality of something is always smaller than the potentiality of something, you know, and um, in our business. And so I, I'm not ignorant of the fact that I'm sure that has something to do with Chris casting me or maybe Sam, you know, um, but also I think, you know, I was, focused and i'd always been focused it's just that my number came up 
and I worked really hard and I put myself into it. I, I never overplayed the seriousness with which I took myself, but I took the work really seriously. And uh, it was head spinning, you know, like there's a part of you, if you, especially I was a little bit older. I was in my twenties, I was in my thirties. So uh, it, there's a part of you that's like, is this my new life? Right. Am I now going to work in movies like this forever? Right. And then I'll be the guy who's like in a magazine, you know? Um, but then there's a part of you that's like, no, the odds are no. <laughs> that's not what happens to most people. Right. Most people, this could be the highlight of your working career and savor it a little, but also work your ass off, you know, and, and, you know, on some of those sets, the people that are around you are like the most talented people in the world. I mean, all those three movies you mentioned, they're the most talented people in the world, technically sometimes, or even the actors. And you're like, you be here and you work hard and you do your thing. Like, do not get in your head about what it all means because this A doesn't mean anything. But B, your only chance to affect your work is before it gets cut and printed, you know, and um, do your best. I, uh, that actually resonates with me quite a bit. I did my first feature film at 24 and with a director that has since blown up and during the Sundance route looked at me and I said, Oh, Hey, this is, this is it, man. You should be really proud of it. This is where it all starts. And then it was six years of just silent whispers, <laughs> barely anything. So, uh, I, I definitely, just understand the fact of, of just relishing in those moments and those triumphs, knowing that you know, now that I'm in my thirties, this career is peaks and valleys. It's mainly valleys. And you just, you really just have to trudge on and keep that passion, keep that, that skill up for it. The truth is that is how it feels in the moment. Right. And yeah. the larger truth though, is this, there are no peaks. There are no valleys. There is nothing. You do the work you have in front of you. You do your best and you try to account for the hours you've been given in life well. Like you try to acquit yourself well for the life you've been given and be of good use. And everything that kind of goes through all of us, which is all of us, ego, pain, uh, wanting more, desire, all this stuff, like that is the kind of noise through which the signal of your work and other people's work needs to break through because we're only here for the life we lead. You want to be accountable for the good work and good being a good person, I think. And you can want greatness because that's common. Everyone wants greatness. Everyone wants to be respected and loved and included. But you can give yourself the smaller parts of that if you really want, like to be included, to be loved, to be cared for, to belong to something, right? By just arranging your life in a way that works for you that way. You don't need to have the conquering hero's experience. And it may not be the experience you think it is, right? Even more interesting to me than the peaks and valleys is that, you know, I was reading about Julius Caesar, you know, and Julius Caesar been dead for 2000 years and we know his name, right? But he doesn't know that because he's dead, right? We are not going to be here for whatever the evaluation is. The only thing we're going to be here for is the joy of the now and the work we do and coping. Like when you say the peaks and valleys, that's right. That's coping. That's our mental, emotional coping mechanism. And we have to cope because it's a really hard business. It's very hard on you, right? You get rejected constantly and it can't not feel personal, right? Um, but if you 
can give yourself the thing you're, you're delaying for these other gratifications, uh, I think the work becomes clearer, I think. Yeah, it, <laughs> sorry, random thought. I need a, a Deleep soundbite app of like just acting affirmations or just daily daily affirmations because you're you have a, a wealth of knowledge i've listened to your your ted talk you know a couple dozen times throughout the years and you know it's just that the way you break everything down is is very comforting so i want to say thank you for that but uh yeah i mm. after that six years man I, I started to realize i i am who i am i am this artist i give great work and when the time comes with booking those projects it'll come uh but that's where this next question comes for you and that's what keeps you uh satiated outside of the industry outside of work what you know keeps you happy? oh yes yeah. what allows you to relax and enjoy life in those very limited moments we have well as you know sometimes they're more than limited because you're not working but um, <laughs> I, I, I i would say uh my you know i things i love I love reading and writing and I don't want to talk too much about that, but yeah, I, I love writing and I love working on projects like that. I like cooking, which is a real passion of mine and I'm getting pretty good at it. Um, and I, I love learning things I don't know anything about, you know, um, I also love learning things. I think I know some things about and find out I don't, but um, I, I like learning about things I don't know anything about. And I like, uh, I have a passionate interest. Like I also have a long abiding interest in things like trivia. I've been in a, a same pub quiz group for 20 some odd years now and uh not the same team obviously the same pub um and you know i am a big fan of cigars which is a big thing in my life i love that i made a lot of my good friends through it um don't smoke it's bad for you but i enjoy it um i you know i, I reading and writing have always been a big part of my life and i try to keep my life with filled with more things nowadays that make me feel fulfilled and enriched and open doors because you can start to feel you're younger than me you just said you're turning 30 i think right 30 31 and there's as you get into middle age these things start to close behind you where you have ignored certain things like for me physical fitness has always been a challenge i'm not fit but i'm trying to realize now fitness matters more than just as an option to look fit now it's like it's about health and aging better and like taking care of yourself so that you don't break down you know uh, which is surprising to say because I still feel very young, but you got to know that's coming, you know. And I look at people around me that are older than me. I'm like, oh, I don't want those things to become habits that destroy me, right? Um, or not destroy me, that's a terrible thing to say, but like make my life harder. Um, so, yeah, those are the things that fill my time. And then, you know, also self development, self growth. Like I've been in therapy for 10 years now, and um, it's, been hugely important and effective and, and um, changed my life. So those are the things I think I, I pursue with some passion. Yeah. And very important, especially therapy more than anything, especially now after the last couple of years we've had. Oh my, uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Is a godsend. Uh, yeah, as we wrap up, I, mm -hmm. I do want to ask you, this is a, a very fun question most of the time, depending on what the experience is, but I wanted to see if you had a party story you could share with our listeners. So it could be something uh, that's happened, you know, throughout your life, uh, or not throughout, but something that happened in your life that could be humorous, tragic, shocking, uh, scary, but something that stands out in your own experience that you would easily recant amongst friends at a party. You want a story about a party or a story I would tell at a party? A story you would tell at a party. So it doesn't have to be, you know, oh, at a, a fancy okay, party, here, but you know, you're amongst friends and you're 
Well, I'll just give you a piece that I would tell a dinner party because I think this is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And I was I had forgotten this and just reread this. I mean, I'm not forgotten it. I actually didn't know this detail. Uh, just just speaking about Julius Caesar, right? Julius Caesar uh, was at the time of his death. Uh, he had no legitimate heir. His daughter had died. She had actually been married to Pompey the Great, his close friend and then enemy. Um, so he he had an illegitimate son of Cleopatra. So he had no legitimate heir. When he was assassinated, they opened his uh, will in the uh, temple. And in that, his entire, most of his entire fortune and estate and positions of power. And he you know, asked all his allies to support his nephew, Octavian, who became Augustus Caesar. Right? Uh, he, he was renamed through that adoption, Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. Right? And Octavian defeats everyone and becomes the first emperor of Rome. The craziest detail is that in that will, and I swear this is so mind-blowing to me, in that will, it says if Octavian is dead or should refuse this honor, which his mother begged him to refuse it because he didn't want her son to get killed, right? The way Caesar had been killed. If he dies or if he refuses it, my entire estate, money, power, relationships go to Marcus Brutus. It was Brutus who was his second heir. Brutus who stabbed him, right, for the Republic. And Brutus who Octavian defeated, really Mark Antony defeated, they defeated, right? That is so ironically insane to me. Like the idea that if Brutus had been suddenly given the power that you are actually going to be the player that might become the dictator, right? The tyrant, the whatever, the Caesar, whatever you want to call it, the bringer of stability, you know, as they always call themselves. And he is one of these assassins is like, and you can say, obviously, they're all in a very rarefied world. There are very few number of senators. But it just also showed that what was true about Caesar was that he deeply admired Marcus Brutus for being a very deep and deeply convicted and uh, a good man, a deeply good person who was honorable, right? We thought... I could literally leave Rome in this man's hands and Rome would be fine. That <laughs> is so mind-blowing to me that I'm like, I you know, like you, you can think one thing of a person and then not know what they really think of you, I guess, you know? Yeah. I'm just imagining them reading through that and going, oh, ooh. <laughs> oh, they did. And also the interesting thing, which is not in Shakespeare's play, because even though he does give the speech in Shakespeare's play and does it beautifully, and apparently he gave a beautiful speech but the thing that Antony did in that speech in real life is he lied. He said, Caesar's, in Caesar's will, all his estates and his money were given to the people. And people are like, yeah, you know, Caesar, like, fuck these guys. We're going to go get all the liberator assassins. And it turned out all the money was left to Octavian, right? All the land was left to Octavian. But Antony said the opposite to stir up the opposition. So propaganda and fake news have been around for a very, very long time. <laughs> That's the story I would tell at a dinner party. That's probably one of the most brilliant stories I've heard on the show. I had no idea. <laughs> I, dude, I knew about Octavian. <laughs> I knew, I knew all about that. I had yeah. no idea who the second heir was. I was like, it's, it's like, it's like, hey, listen, can you imagine when he saw the guy with a knife? He's like, that's why the Etu Brute I would, I think, is legend. He didn't, he didn't really say it. Uh, he just fell and like he put. Uh, they said then fall Caesar and put his toga over his face while he died. Um, but can you imagine the shock in his being of like, 
No, dude, I was going to give you the Empire. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> I uh, That just makes me want to read even more about just, you know, that time period outside of what I read in college and high school. And, you know, you do some fun reading after college. I There's still never came across that. There's a great podcast by the legendary histor- historical or historian, not really a story, uh, um, podcaster Mike Duncan. It's called The History of Rome, literally. And it's like 170 episodes or something. They start about 15 minutes in the beginning, but they get to about 30 by the end. And they're really digestible. I think this fact is in there. Um, I think so. Oh, my God. Well, you just unlocked another, I don't know, how many, however many hours of uh, podcast it's listening I'll get good into. good <laughs> for whatever exercise you want to do or walk. You take around the block or walk on the dog. It's great for that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a total junkie and nerd for that kind of stuff. So oh, there it yeah, is. Man. Uh, I, I'm a junkie for anything that has to do with, uh, I don't know, essentially world war two, world war one, like that for some reason it just stood out to me. So I, I can relate. Uh, I do want to ask you, do you have any advice you could pass on to our listeners that you've held onto personally throughout your career? Is there anything that you could, uh, just in life or, or about just in career? life it doesn't have to be acting or entertainment at all. Just, just in life to be happy, to, to be fulfilled. Be kind to yourself and others. Judge less. Uh, love more. Be available to be loved. Be breakable. Let your heart be broken. You are taught to defend yourself. Don't. Uh, be at risk. In a, in, I don't mean physically, but I mean emotionally. Um, be available to others. And um, be humble in a way that's honest. Be proud in a way that's honest know where you come from you are valuable you are uh of worth automatically you belong there's no one that doesn't belong yet lest they tell themselves that yeah so uh value yourself but when you truly value yourself you will not overdo it either right like Mm -hmm. arrogance comes from insecurity and underappreciation or whatever and egotism and a lack of self um the allowance of self-worth and we all battle that i think because we live in societies that threaten that or we also have disconnected communities things like that but yeah just remember you belong you're worthy to exactly the station as anyone else uh pick up your tools and get to work and we'll all work together and love the thing at the end we all made together all the better for none of us having trying to be having tried to be more special than the other belong you belong you know I think that's going to hit home with a lot of people listening to this. Thank you for that. Seriously. Uh, yeah, no problem. Man. I believe it. I uh, I also want to see, do you have anything we can give a shout out to or promote with this episode? Of course, uh, Avatar I'm 2. I'm right now called Avatar 2. <laughs> I think we're about five or six weeks out of re- uh, release now. Um, yeah, it's it's been doing very well. Please go see it. Uh, I'm, I pop up here and there in that one. Um, but it's a really beautiful film. I'm very proud to be in it. Uh, I found it very moving when I saw it um, and I wept and I feel those themes very deeply. And I think it's a great, great holiday family picture for everyone. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I saw it and there were obviously I won't get into spoilers, but there are sequences in there. I was just like, I, am I, I cry. Why I'm crying. What the fuck? <laughs> I know. I know. That's Jim. Now. That's Jim. Oh, that Cameron. Uh, Genius. Elite man, this has been uh, a complete pleasure. Thank you so much for you know sharing your time with me, sitting down and chat. 
before we stop the recording, I just have a one goodbye that we like to do on the show, which is a, an awkward goodbye. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with Wayne's World by any chance. I uh, have seen it, yeah. Okay. Uh, essentially, what I'll do is give you a silent cameraman countdown, three, two, one. And when I point, just give me your best verbal awkward goodbye. Think of like the most awkward self-taper audition anyone has ever done and just okay. <laughs> try, try to go All over right. that. All right, buddy. Yeah. Here we go. In. So do you want to, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Catch you around. See ya.